Hello, everybody. Um, thank you for coming out on this very warm day in Fargo. And I'm so glad that you joined us. Um, welcome to Happy Hour with Pastor Dale, tackling tough topics with uplifting love and grace. And uh, today we're going to talk about um, a very um, important topic, uh, certainly to our Lighthouse family and um, I know to lots of people. Um, so welcome those of you um, who are here live and I know there are and will be people watching um, li on a li live stream or eventually on our website on YouTube and Facebook and uh, we want to thank you for joining us as well. And I want you to welcome um, Dr. Amy Wurmeyer who is back. She is our first returning uh, happy hour guest and uh, she, yep. <laughs> what an honor. Yeah, um, so excited to have her here. Um, we uh, uh, we were um, able to be together last. I don't know. Was it a year ago? Probably. I think it was June. Yeah. Was it June? I think so because I went straight from here to a baseball game, and that's what I'm going to do tonight too. Gotcha. Well, um, we uh, we were able to talk um, a year ago about um, medicines for. Uh, depression, and today we're going to talk about other mental health meds. But first, because a lot of you don't know um, Amy, um, I want Amy to just introduce um, herself. I've known Amy for many years and um, have come to really respect not only her as a, a person of faith and uh, and um, a family person, but also somebody who does great work in our community. So can you introduce yourself? Sure. So professionally, I'm a professor at North Dakota State University, and I'm the chair of the pharmacy practice department. And I'm a board-certified psychiatric pharmacist. A lot of people didn't know that that's such a thing, but it is. There are about 1,500 of us across the country that are specialized in the use of mental health medications. Um, I'm also going to be the president of the National Association of Psychiatric Pharmacists starting on July 1st. So I have a great network of colleagues around the country wow. that I get to interact with. Personally, um, I'm a mom and a wife. Um, I have three teenage sons, and I was telling Dale earlier, we're going to be welcoming a fourth teenage boy into our home this summer who's going to live with us for a year while his parents have, well, one of his parents is deceased and the other is going to relocate. So I say bring on the teenage boys, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. And um, I'm a member of Atonement Church in South Fargo, and one of the things that I really love about the joining, I guess you'd say, of my career and my faith life is that I get to model that for pharmacy students. I'm actually the advisor of the Christian Pharmacist Fellowship International Student Organization at NDSU, and so um, I get to do a little bit of crosswalking, I guess you might say, how to live out your life of faith as a Christian when you're also a medical professional. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, you do a lot of wonderful things. And thank you. Uh, so glad that you're willing to give us a little bit of your time again and uh, to share. So we're going to jump right into it because uh, last time we spent, we went overboard probably. Um, last time we spoke about medication specifically for depression, uh, we touched on anxiety meds a little bit. Um, and what I want to do today is we're going to talk about um, the diversity of medications that are available for mental health issues. And so that's really what I want you to start with, is if you can just kind of talk a little bit about that diversity, and, and then we're going to kind of get into the various meds and how they work. So, sure. 
What's the diversity of, of meds that are able to be prescribed for mental health issues? If we're talking specifically about anxiety, there are there's really a broad diversity of anti-anxiety medications. And interestingly, not a single one of them is actually labeled as anti-anxiety medication as a class. Hmm. They all have been used for other purposes. Um, if you tuned in last time when we talked about medications for depression, you'll see there's a lot of overlap between medications for anxiety and medications for depression. Um, I'm going to list off just the categories of medications that can be used for anxiety, and then as we start talking in more detail, they'll all the, those categories will each come up on the screen with example medications in each of those categories in case you're wondering, like, well, this medication that I've taken before, I don't know what category it's in. Um, so the SSRIs, or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, are antidepressants. So it's odd that they're called antidepressants, but they're also actually the first-line choice for anxiety, especially if we're talking about long-term management, um, maintenance kind of um, mode for managing anxiety. They're not very good for short-term management of anxiety because they don't work quickly, but if someone is dealing with chronic anxiety, the antidepressant medications are what we think of as our first go-to. Um, the benzodiazepines are another group of anti-anxiety medications. Those are much more fit for short-term use. They work quickly, like within half an hour to an hour in most cases, but they also wear off very quickly. And they have a tendency to worsen anxiety over time if they're used long-term. Um, we're going to talk in a few minutes about how they work in the brain, and there are very large differences between how the antidepressants work in the brain and the benzodiazepines work, and that gets at why they work so differently timing-wise, but also why one of them is good for long-term use and, and the other is not. Um, we also use antipsychotic medications for anxiety, which again is a very misleading name of a category of medications when they're called antipsychotics. And it scares a lot of people to hear that name thrown out as a medication. And you're like, well, I just have anxiety. I don't think I need something like that. Um, but it really, it's unfortunate that the antipsychotics are named the way they are because they are used for a lot of other things besides psychosis, although they're very good for that as well. Um, and then there's a kind of basket of other medic medications that we use for anxiety that aren't very similar to one another, but they also don't fit in any of the other categories. And so you can see them on the screen now. These would be things that we use for anxiety, sometimes in addition to one of the other categories I've already mentioned, or sometimes all by themselves, and they are helpful and useful that way. Um, so that's kind of the diversity yeah. of the possible options for treating anxiety. And I also want to be sure to say that if, if I'm comparing my confidence in medications from one mental health condition to another, I would say my confidence in medications to control anxiety all by themselves is probably the lowest compared with something like schizophrenia or depression or bipolar disorder. Anxiety really needs therapy in addition to medication. And I, I think the statistics would show that less than a third of people who rely only on medication to address their anxiety get kind of suboptimal results. Or I should say a third of people who rely only on medication get optimal results. The remaining two thirds get less than optimal results. So. Okay, so that's a, that's a 
big deal what yeah. you just share, shared. Okay, so um, most people, medication is just not the only answer right. for their... It often is an answer and part mm -hmm. of a toolbox of the tools that might be needed to manage anxiety, but all by itself, it's probably going to be disappointing if you don't couple it with some some talking about what's at the heart and the root of the anxiety that's, that you're experiencing. Okay. Um, thank you for sharing that. I'm just going to tell Beth that I, I think she's going to go back through slides, so you'll, you'll be able to, um, she'll let you know when you're going to change. So, um, so I, one of the reasons I really wanted to kind of go into um, anti-anxiety meds is because um, most of our church is on them. No, that, that might be a little bit of an overstatement. Well, most of America is on Most them. of America is. Yeah. And, um, and um, I, I'm not so sure that most of our church is on anti-anxiety meds. But what I can say is that when I meet new people coming to our church, um, I bet seven or eight out of ten tell me um, how anxious they are being here. And that anxiety is one of the big issues that they deal with. And... And so um, our lighthouse is known kind of as a recovery place, which people equate with addiction often. And there are people with addictions here, but hands down, depression, anxiety would be the major issues. And um, I am just, I, I would just like you to explain to us how these anti-anxiety meds work, uh, both in the brain and what they do for the person kind of who's trying to live out and deal with their anxiety. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, will you back up to the benzodiazepine slide to start with? Thank you. So probably many of you, if you've been treated for anxiety, you've maybe talked about one of these options with your doctor, or you've even taken one for a short or long period of time. So these medications are what I was referring to as medications that work quickly for anxiety, but for long-term use, they're not great. And part of the reason is the way that they work in the brain is by affecting the balance between two different chemicals in the brain. One is called GABA, and that's just like the brakes in a car. GABA is always going to slow down pretty much every brain process. So it's like stepping on the brakes in your brain. The other chemical is glutamate, and glutamate is activating. It's always like the gas pedal in your brain. And ideally, your brain will be able to self-regulate the amount and activity of those two chemicals and systems in your brain. But when anxiety is running wild, it's sometimes a problem of having too much glutamate that the GABA is not able to um, overcome, or not having enough GABA around, and so therefore the glutamate is like relatively higher than the yeah. amount of GABA you have. So these medications make it so that GABA can get to its spot in the brain better, so that it can get to the place where it needs to carry out its action of stepping on the brakes. So if that's all that these medications did, that would probably be fine. And we'd say, okay, good, we're able to step on the brakes, we're able to slow down your anxiety. But unfortunately, they don't just stick to slowing down anxiety. They step on the brakes with every brain process, including your ability to think, your ability to form memories, your ability to react to situations like when you're driving, even your ability to breathe. If you take enough of one of these, it will impact your ability to breathe it's, and like step on the brakes in that area of your brain. So they're not very specific at all. They're, they're like putting a lid on a boiling pot, but not ever turning off the heat source. 
Okay, they're just putting the lid on and trying to keep anxiety at a certain level, but not ever addressing what's going on to cause this GABA glutamate imbalance in the first place. That tells me they're not a long-term solution. Right. Okay. And we actually know that over time, when you use one of these, because it's making your GABA a little more active in your brain, your brain goes, oh, well, I better compensate and increase my glutamate because I've got this extra GABA. Hmm. And so then... Um, you get more gas pedal activity because your brain's compensating for the brake activity, and then you got to use more brake activity to c overcome the extra gas pedal, and you can kind of get this vicious cycle of activation and slowing down and activation and slowing down. And some people will even comment that they feel like they're just on a roller coaster with their anxiety all the time when they're taking one of these. They feel fine for a while, and then even within the same day, things just blow up again. And then, oh, I take the medication, and it goes back down, and then it blows up again. And that's literally what's happening in the brain. So... These are really good if you, like, you got to get on an airplane and that scares you to death and you only have to be on that airplane for a couple of hours and then you're not going to fly again for a week and then you're going to come back home, take a dose of it, and then you're not going to fly again for a few months. These, that's a perfect situation for a medicine like this. But on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis over months and years, they perhaps can lead to more problems than benefits for, for some people. Now, that's always an individualized decision and a weighing of the pros and cons with your provider. I, I would never want to make a blanket statement that these are bad for long-term use, um, but they are, there are concerns about the way that they work and their ability to manage anxiety long-term. So I'm, I'm going to kind of jump in because I, I know I have these questions kind of laid out this way, but I want to ask this now. Is this one that you would take on a daily basis or as needed? Because I know that there are anxiety meds for yeah. both. It could be either. Okay. Um, the, the most, we have a lot of confidence, I guess I would say, in using these as needed for panic attacks. So when someone has an acute episode of panic where their heart rate's through the roof and they're sweating bullets and they feel like they're about to die from their anxiety and the panic, these work fast and they work short term and that's often a good um, use of them. Now, if someone has three panic attacks a week, we got to look at what else we need to do to make sure the panic attacks reduce in frequency because these are not going to do that. They're going to address a panic attack when it's occurring, but they're not going to prevent them from happening and they're not going to make it so that they happen less often. I'm also knowledgeable enough of this to know that these, some of these can be abused. Yes. Can you talk about that? Yes. So when I said if these only stepped on the brakes in our brains as far as anxiety goes and that's all they did, that'd be great. But we, we know that's not all they do. In addition to them stepping on the brakes using your GABA chemical in your brain, they also cause a little spurt of dopamine to be released in your brain. And anybody who's had any addiction training will know that dopamine equals pleasure. And so at the exact same time that your brain is getting its anxiety slowed down because of stepping on the brakes, you're also getting a little spurt of um, a sensation that people often describe as like, <sighs> it's not necessarily like you feel like you have a buzz or you have a high or you just, you know, life is grand, but it's a, it's a very noticeable relief of, um, like a relief sensation. And you, oh, that feels good. That kind of thing. And that is problematic because anytime you get a spurt of dopamine released in your brain, your brain takes a snapshot of that as an important event that it would like to repeat. 
And so if you continuously get the messages in your brain that this dopamine spurt is the same as anxiety relief, it's taking snapshots that this is, this is what happens. This is how I get relief of anxiety. But that's not actually true. Because relief from anxiety is not the same as, <sighs> it's just, oh, I'm not anxious anymore. My thoughts are happening at a regular pace again. I can concentrate on what I'm trying to think about without my mind going a million directions. And so the, the way that these can become addictive is that your brain starts to seek out that dopamine spurt and think that it's anxious if it doesn't have that dopamine spurt. And so that's another reason why we would really ideally not like to use these long term because the more that snapshot gets taken, the more that sets the person up for wanting to seek these out. So we're, we're kind of starting with the, the topic that I most wanted to deal with. Uh -huh. um, so we might as well tackle it first. Let's keep right? going, okay. right? Um, so um, would you say that there is a higher risk for benzos being prescribed to people who already have substance use disorder or addiction issues? I think it really depends on the relationship they have with their provider and the severity of their symptoms. I think in the mental health world, it, it seems like it's best practice probably to try to avoid prescribing these to people who have a history of substance use um, issues. Mostly because once the brain has become addicted, it has the framework built and the nerve connections built to be able to take right off on that highway again right. when any other um, potentially addictive substance is present. And so it's not like a profiling kind of thing where like, oh, well, they have alcohol addiction in their past. There's no way I'm giving them these because I'm stigmatizing them or something. It's a... a a pros cons kind of decision. Hopefully, that's that would be the. Are there ideal. alternatives? Yes. Okay, so we'll get to that. Yes. But um, so if somebody if somebody is on these um, and has had some trouble um, maybe managing them um, and taking them properly, that's something that they should obviously. We know this. Talk to their provider, maybe to their pharmacist about. Yeah. Um, and do you have any other guidance at this point? Well, I would just say that uh, stopping these cold turkey is often very uncomfortable and can actually be dangerous. There's a very small risk that it could induce a seizure if someone's been taking one of these for more than like two to three months continuously and then stops taking them cold turkey. So it's really in your best interest to talk to your doctor about gradually getting off of one of these if you're thinking about changing the way you want to take them or about getting off of them, period. Taking it slow is almost always better than abruptly stopping. So one of the things that um, happens, I suspect, with people who um, have trouble managing them is they will get a prescription for a month or two weeks or whatever, um, use them all in a few days, and then have to stop. What does that cause in the in the person or in the brain if yeah. that's happening on a regular basis. Yeah, so I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the term withdrawal when you're used to having a substance in your body and then you have none of it or very or less of it. Um, your body has a physical reaction with physical symptoms. Well, these are no different. And um, especially if someone's using a large amount of them and then uses none, they will almost 
100% of the time experience some form of withdrawal. And that includes worsened anxiety, but it also includes things like sweating and shaking and um, just overall feeling of really crumminess and, uh, like I mentioned before, the potential for a seizure to occur. Yeah. Insomnia is really common when people have been taking these and then are no longer taking them. So. Okay. All right. Um, whew, I'm exhausted. Okay. Um, so let's talk about some of the other meds then. Okay. And what would you like to take us through next? Let's go back to the antidepressants slide. I'm not even sure it's labeled that way, actually, but it's the one with the big green circle. There we go. So the print is smaller on this slide, but these are, as I was talking about before, our first choice of anti-anxiety medications. Even though they're called antidepressants, it's kind of unfortunate that they're not also called anti-anxiety hmm. treatments because that's, that's definitely what they are and what we would want to use first for long-term anxiety symptoms. And when I say long-term, I mean people who've had anxiety that is present on more days than not for more than a month or two at a time. Um, I put the green circle around the ones at the top because those are the ones that are going to be used probably earlier on in treatment when you're first getting um, established with treatment for an anxiety condition. And the ones that are at the bottom are, they're less pleasant to take a lot of the time. They have more side effects. They have more drug interactions. Maybe they're higher in cost. And some of them are really new and are primarily only used for depression and not moving into the anxiety treatment space yet. So um, these medications mostly, although there are some exceptions, they mostly work on the chemical in the brain called serotonin. Maybe you've heard of serotonin. We talked a lot about serotonin when we talked mm -hmm. about treating depression. And we know that serotonin is responsible for allowing your brain to communicate messages that are mood-maintaining, so helping you stay out of the super highs and lows, but also anxiety-inhibiting. So the more serotonin signaling we have happening in our brain, the better it is for our brains to be able to keep our moods at a relatively stable level and prevent ourselves from going into more racing thoughts, um, lots of worry kinds of thought patterns. Okay. So um, are any of these things that, um, you know, would be taken only on certain occasions, or are these all daily medications, and are any of them susceptible to abuse? They are all daily medications. They don't work nearly as well if people don't take them on a pretty regular basis. Um, you know, missing a dose here or there is probably not going to make or break you, but if you tend to be a person who takes a medication one day and then the next day forgets, and then you take it for three days in a row, and then you forget for two days, these, you're probably not going to get the results that you want with these medications. They really do need to be taken on a pretty regular basis with as few of missed doses as possible. Um, these are not addictive. They do not have an impact, as, certainly not directly, on dopamine, which is our addiction chemical. Um, but there's a lot of kind of urban legend out there if you read blogs, which I don't recommend, <laughs> about medications, there's a lot of misinformation, including kind of theories that antidepressants are addictive. And that's just, pharmacologically speaking, it's not true. It's not possible, really, because of the way that these work. Now, our brains do actually like having the amount of serotonin that keeps us stable. And so if, if you're used to taking one of these and it's been working and it's been keeping you stable and you stop taking one of these, 
you, you may experience what we call discontinuation symptoms. Those are not the same as withdrawal. It's a completely different chemical system in the brain. Um, but people can notice that they feel kind of crummy. They feel like, like maybe they're coming down with something, like a flu-like illness, sort of. And people can experience a sort of odd phenomenon that we call the zaps. Um, I don't know if any of you have experienced these, but they're often electric shock-like sensations in your head. Um, they're not painful and they're not harmful, but they are kind of specific to having stopped taking one of these medications after you've been taking one for a while. They go away all on their own, and there's, we don't even have a great explanation for why they happen, mm. except for that the brain does tend to, like, as I said, like having that stable amount of serotonin and then react a little bit when it's not there. But that's not the same as being addicted to one of these medications. We talked, um, I know when we talked about depression, depression meds that, that you know, often the, the biggest culprit for, for people, I, my experience is, is that, um, you know, I've been taking the med for quite a while and I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. I must be okay now. And so they stop taking them and then perhaps end up in some difficulty. And that's what you just described. Am I correct? Right. Okay. Well, that and, um, you know, it's really hard to to feel like you should keep taking a medication when you're stable and things seem like they're going well. Um, but the reason that you might be feeling that way is because the medication is doing what it's supposed to do. And so um, the fact that a medication works for someone is a strong clue for us that their brain is probably not able to support itself without the medication's effects and not able to create its own serotonin signaling well enough to keep it um, stable. And so stopping an antidepressant medication without consultation with your doctor first does run the risk of having your anxiety or depression return. It's kind of like if you have diabetes, that's, that means that your pancreas is not able to produce enough insulin to keep your blood sugar at a stable level, and you need medication to help do that. Well, the brain's no different than the pancreas, really. They're both internal organs, and sometimes the brain needs support of medication to keep it stable, just like the pancreas does. So are these the meds that most um, physicians or people would prescribe um, to start with anxiety? Yes. And so when they go to the uh, benzo diazepines, yeah, am I, did I say that yeah. correctly? Um, usually those are like a second level, like these didn't work. How would you describe that? They could be a second level. More often it's um, that these are started and a benzodiazepine would be started at the same time. Okay. Um, because these take about six weeks to start working, whereas benzodiazepines work quickly within, as I said, 30 minutes to an hour. And so we will sometimes use the benzodiazepines as a bridge for short-term use to get the anxiety under control while we wait for one of these to work. Or to, I shouldn't say under control, but to make it more tolerable okay. while we wait for one of these to work. But the, the goal usually in that situation is that the benzodiazepine won't be used for more than a couple of weeks, and then it'll be tapered off. Okay. All right. What's next? Um, let's go to the antipsychotic medications. So the this is a long list. There are a lot of medications in this category. The ones that I bolded are the ones that would be used for anxiety more commonly. The others are, are used for bipolar disorder or schizophrenia more often than they are used for anxiety. Probably any of them will have some impact on anxiety, um, but just kind of by convention and by what's been studied in the medical research, the ones that are bolded are used for anxiety more often. Um, in order to explain 
exactly how they work in the brain, um, we'd have to have kind of a whole long chemistry lesson. Um, (laughs) But let's um, summarize by saying that they kind of help brain chemicals, including serotonin, to be plugged into the right spots. Um, I think of mental health medications often like a light bright. Anybody old as me and remember the light bright toy where you plug those those fun little pegs into the um, screen and then you get a pretty picture? So mental health medications you can think of as like putting the light bright together. And these medications kind of help to, to guide what the picture is going to look like in the end. And so there's not one specific effect they're doing that helps them work on anxiety that we're able to narrow down, but they help put the whole picture together. And they're used really as a later line therapy when the other medications we've already looked at on the screen are not very helpful. And oftentimes we would not use these all on their own, but we might add one of them onto an antidepressant or maybe onto a benzodiazepine depending on the person. And often we find that these are really helpful to treat anxiety when people also have another condition that these kind of medications would treat. So schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, really commonly we'll use these to treat anxiety um, because sometimes the antidepressants can um, destabilize those conditions a little bit. So these are helpful for treating an additional condition, plus they also will <clears throat> excuse me, often help with anxiety on top of that. Usually, if, if we're getting um, this prescribed and all this prescribed and this prescribed, I'm assuming um, at least the pharmacist is aware of that when we go to get our prescriptions filled and is going to be attentive to that? Ideally, yes, as long as you're filling your prescriptions at the same pharmacy. Huh? Um, but pharmacy computer systems don't talk to one another. So if you go to West Acres Pharmacy and get one of your prescriptions filled and then you go to Walgreens and get a different one filled, their computers don't talk to each other. If you're getting them prescribed by, all by the same provider, the same doctor or nurse practitioner or whomever, um, their computer system will also do a check of the medications. Um, but I would say it's, it's really important as much as you can to also keep track of what your medications are, especially if you see more than one doctor or, or tend to use more than one pharmacy because that's, I would say, the best double check and the best um, final source of information about what all you're taking and the doses and those sorts of things to make sure that we're not compounding too many things on top of one another because that certainly does happen. Well, so are any of the meds that we've discussed today prescribed for attention deficit or any um, related issues? Not very commonly. Um, They certainly wouldn't be thought of as a primary treatment for attention deficit um, or ADHD. Um, The antidepressant medications will sometimes be used if um, an ADHD treatment brings about anxiety, which can sometimes happen, then an, an antidepressant might be added to help reduce that effect. And once in a while, when there is a lot of impulsivity in someone's um, attention deficit or hyperactivity, then an antidepressant might be used because they can help to reduce impulsivity a little bit. Okay. And actually, same with the antipsychotics sometimes. Yeah. So, so just give some kind of um, compassionate advice because, uh, you know, one of the common issues that um, people in our Lighthouse family deal with is is just the abuse of meds and um, the improper taking of them, um, either stopping them on our own or taking them irregularly or abusing them. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, one of the things that I would say uh, as part of this Lighthouse family um, is that, first of all, there's no shame in having troubles with your meds. We, we all know that um, we're works in progress. We all deal with issues. And um, we have uh, things that, you know, prevent us from, you know, that can be barriers to having a stability, having stability in our lives. But what kind of advice would you give to us just, you know, out of kind of not only your pharmaceutical knowledge, but your care for people? Sure. Well, I think you probably know that I'm a firm believer in that no one wants to become addicted or no one intentionally tries to mess up their medications and take them in disorganized or irrational ways. And so I would say just what you said, Mm -hmm. that there is no shame in having problems crop up or having confusion about what the medications are supposed to be doing or how you're supposed to be taking them or even the compulsion to use them more than than they're intended. Um, we're all trying to find our own peace and our own um, you know way to feel like we can continue on in this life, right? And that can come from a lot of sources and sometimes we might maybe misplace our trust in medications in the hope that they'll be able to do that for us. And sometimes they can, you know, bring about a greater sense of stability and peace, but not all the time. And so um, I guess I would suggest as advice that it's, it's good to be hopeful about your medications, but I would not place all my trust in my medications and expect that they're always going to be the, the primary answer to what my concerns might be. And that's, I mean, I'm a pharmacist. I'm supposed to be a person who promotes medications, right? But my experience has been that they, they help but they are not always the only solution. And so thinking about them as a tool in your toolbox and um, thinking about what other tools you also need in your toolbox, I think maybe is a, a way I would suggest thinking about them. Yeah, it'd certainly be worth putting in a plug here for um, our Lighthouse family. I mean, I think most of you here um, are part of the Lighthouse family and and maybe see some of the benefit of being within community that's accepting and encouraging and understanding um, as kind of a key to uh, at least coming alongside some of the other things that we're doing. And those watching um, in other places, um, you know, if you're in the Fargo-Moorhead area, you're very welcome to come here. And um, otherwise, we would encourage you to find a therapist or or the kind of support that that might be able to um, kind of help you navigate some of the difficulties that you're dealing with. Um, so I, you know, we've kind of been all over the place in my <laughs> questions. Um, um, I just want to check the time. What if you um, drink alcohol or use narcotics on any of these meds that we're discussing? Okay. So I sometimes I get nervous when I answer this question because it's different than what the textbook would say. Um, so and what I was taught to tell people when I was in pharmacy school. Um, If we're talking about the benzodiazepine medications, using alcohol with them is dangerous. There's no other way to dice it. Um, The combination of these medications with alcohol, both of them are stepping on the brakes in your brain. They're both stepping on the brakes in your breathing center, which is what tells your body that you're getting low on oxygen and you need to breathe more. And so combining alcohol with these, I would say, is pretty much 100% of the time a please avoid because the risk is high. Now, there may be people in the room who have experience with combining alcohol with these and had no problem. 
and that may very well be the case, but it's always a game of Russian roulette, I would say, if you're combining alcohol with yeast, because you just never know at what point it's going to be too much for your brain, and you can have very severe problems. And um, I've seen, I've worked with people who've had irreversible severe problems, like brain damage, because of the combination of alcohol and a benzodiazepine at the same time. So when the bottle of a benzodiazepine, the prescription bottle, when it has a sticker on the side that says do not combine with alcohol, take that for what it says, do not combine with alcohol. Now if we're talking about the antidepressants, they often usually come with a sticker on the side of the bottle also that says do not combine with antidepressants, or with um, alcohol. And so then people have, always, have often asked me, well this is a medicine I'm supposed to take long term. What does that mean? Can I never have a glass of wine when I'm at a wedding or whatever? And um, this is where I go off the beaten path a little bit. Um, the, there, it's not like alcohol and one of these medicines are going to meet up in your body and a bomb's going to go off. Um, they're, they're not good for each other. Let's put it that way. It's kind of like the, the girlfriend and the boyfriend who are abusive to each other. They can sometimes be in the same room, but it's best if they're not. Oh. So that's kind of the way it is with these medications. That... Um, one glass of wine, if you're a person who can keep it to one glass of wine and your mental health symptoms are pretty stable, I'd say that's low-ish risk. But if you're not a person who can keep it to one glass of wine and one turns into two or five or ten, um, or your symptoms have not been very stable over the last three to six months, then the risk is much higher and there's much more likelihood that you're going to do yourself more harm in terms of the ability of your medicine to try to, to do what it's trying to do in your brain, as well as your brain to recover from its depression or anxiety or whatever else you might be using these for, um, is just hampered. And so it's kind of like a double whammy to add alcohol into the picture with these medicines because it's just reversing effects and making the underlying problem in the organ worse. Mm. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. Yep. yep. The antipsychotics would be similar to what I just said about the antidepressants. Okay. All right. And I should also add that yep, go ahead. whatever, any other abusive substance you can think of, the same applies. Okay. Well, we can think of a lot of them. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, last big question. You knew this was coming. Um, marijuana and THC products um, becoming more and more prevalent. Um, I find more and more, uh, more and more people are being um, are turning to medical marijuana uh, to deal with anxiety, mm -hmm. and um, we just need to kind of get your input on that. And um, I have no idea what she's going to say. So, <laughs> um, so what can you share with us about that? And um, we'll talk about it. Okay. Well, I want to first start off by saying I'm not an anti-marijuana person on principle. I think this topic has the tendency to be very polarizing and people set up in one camp or the other. They're pro or they're against. And I'm square in the middle at this point. Um, I feel like, I shouldn't say I feel, I know based on what I've examined in the medical literature and what the research is showing so far, that the best answer we can give is maybe. Maybe cannabis is helpful for anxiety. If there are so many complicating factors that can sway that answer one way or the other, um, including the, the makeup of the cannabis product that's being used. So far, the research seems to indicate that, that products that have really any amount of THC in them probably worsen anxiety and PTSD, which is unfortunate because they are marketed for 
anxiety, and PTSD. But oh. the research is pretty strongly showing that over time, anxiety gets worse, and so does PTSD, when THC forms of cannabis are used. CBD looks a little more favorable, I would say. I'm not confident at this point that it would be something I would recommend for lots and lots of people. Um, but I think if other things have been tried and they're not leading to the results that you're looking for, a CBD-only product might be worth a try. But I would put lots of asterisks next to that. And I would think of them sort of similar to what I said about the benzodiazepines because the early research also indicates that they might do some of the same kinds of things that benzodiazepines do in terms of kind of tricking your brain into thinking that the pleasure you feel is relief of anxiety when really those are not the same thing but your brain starts to tie them together because they're happening at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah, I had a physician tell me once that, that they kind of suspected that um, it didn't necessarily kind of deal with the anxiety as much as make you care less about it. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So what is happening when we take, um, you know, cannabis or THC into our brain? What happens in the brain? Unfortunately, we don't have a really strong understanding of that. We know that the components um, land at cannabinoid receptors in the brain. Um, but unlike the GABA system and the serotonin system, we don't really have a great understanding of the kind of, for lack of a better word, tentacles that the cannabinoid system has. We can see what happens directly when one of these lands at the cannabinoid receptor, but then what happens from there in the downstream effects we just don't know yet. And I, I think the research in the next decade or so will probably help to clarify to some degree at least. But at this point in time, it's, it's just not known. And it may also be really variable depending on the strain of cannabis that's being used, you know, the conditions it was grown in and the concentration of not only the active cannabinoids, but the non-active components of the plant as well. It might also be different depending on an individual person's brain makeup and the shape of their cannabinoid receptors. I mean, there are just, like I said, a lot of complex factors that we don't really understand yet. Okay. Um, so, so what should I tell people who ask me about that? <laughs> um, I would say use at your own risk. Do a careful self-evaluation of what your anxiety symptoms are before you start, if possible, and track them over time. Um, using like a, there are anxiety tracking um, apps, or you can just do it on a piece of paper. You can write down the things that you know about yourself when your anxiety is bad, and rate those using a number from zero to 10 if you want, um, before you start, or maybe now, and then over time, keep rating those same things on a, daily basis, ideally, but at least weekly, so you can gauge for yourself what's happening to me and my anxiety over time. And if you see it's not looking good, then it's time to start looking at, you know, is this really the right thing for me? You started by saying that, that um, a, just a percentage of people literally are able to be helped only by meds with their anxiety and that it's not necessarily the solution, and that therapy is, uh, is the word you used, yeah. which, which tells me that there is something more than just a little bit of a brain disorder going on. Yeah. Um, do you, I don't know if you've, that's not a question that maybe is your, in your area of expertise, but, but um, obviously our anxieties come from our past experiences or trauma um, or other issues, but do you, can you say anything about that? Or? Yeah. 
Um, the studies about this are fascinating, I think, because we're starting to understand that traumatic experiences in early life, especially other things too, but um, especially traumatic experiences in early life, change the connections in our brains. They change the way our nerves actually fit together and what their functions are when they're connecting to one another. And those changes can be reversed or I shouldn't say reverse entirely, but they can be um, new connections remade, can be yes, yep. in a more functional way. Medications can do that, and therapy can do that. Both of them can make it so that your nerve connections are different than they were when you started. When you combine therapy and medication, you really get a very healthy remapping of connections in the brain. Um, and people, you know, we used to think, well, how could therapy change what your brain structure is? How, that doesn't make any sense. And it's still kind of like, wow, really? It, that can happen, but it's true. The processing of information and emotion and experiences changes the way your nerves are connected to one another. Medication can have an influence on that as well, but really the, the magic is, I think, when they're both used together. Wow, yeah. So we are going to take a few minutes for some question and answers. Um, and so it looks like Ross and Beth are going to run some mics. And, um, you know, we're going to try to keep the questions to things that um, Amy doesn't have to completely diagnose your whole medical history <laughs> to answer. Um, and uh, I do know that she will spend a few minutes afterwards, I believe, um, if there are some personal questions that you want to ask. Your questions will be on the live stream as well. And if you're watching on Facebook, you're able to write in a question, and uh, we'll try to get to it. So are there any questions? P there are hands going up all over here. So, Yeah, what's a good option to Seroquel? You mean instead of Seroquel? Uh-huh. Um, it depends on what, are you, are you talking about for anxiety specifically? Uh, okay. Um, I would say really any of the ones that were on that antipsychotic slide have the potential to be good options, but it kind of depends on what's challenging about Seroquel for someone, um, depending on if they're experiencing side effects or if it's not working or if it's making them too tired or if they're, that's a really nuanced answer, I would say. It makes him tired, and it makes him eat. Okay. Um, probably Abilify would be what I would say right off the bat as an alternative that has lower likelihood of doing either one of those things. Okay, thank you for... Mm -hmm. All right, over here. Hi, Lighthouse. I'm Louisa. Um, I am kind of curious on what happens in the brain that like would make a person at one point in their life not be helped by a medication such as Abilify and, and then later on in life Abilify helps them? That's that, what happened with me. That's a really good question and you know I've not seen very much about that described in the medical literature but so I would only be kind of guessing here but I would say that you know, as I was talking about how your brain connections change over time, that perhaps some kind of change in brain connection allowed for that medication to start working to kind of get the signaling through where it needs to go better that, that wasn't in place maybe in the past. Maybe yeah. some of the other connections that right. yeah, have been made. Yeah, interesting. 
Very interesting. All right, Marjorie? So I, I just realized I have been on, I had been on citalopram for like 23 years. And I was also put on Wellbutrin. And over time, just lately, I, not just lately, but some time ago, it was reduced from 40, citalopram, from 40 milligrams to 20 to 10. And then I said to my doctor, I would really like to get off of this. I can't cry. I want to cry. Hmm. He says, wait until the end of April, beginning of May. And so I did. I went off of that, and then with the Wellbutrin, I believe there was a time when a doctor told me that that, you can just be done with it. So I am off of both of them. I'm not taking any medicine. And I'm crying, and I'm laughing, and I get a little shaky sometimes when I talk when I talk about Jesus, but I think that's good. Yeah. And I'm just wondering. Well, not wondering, but I think I did the right thing. Huh. It sounds like it. You yeah. know, my sister died six years ago, and I'm finally starting to cry about it. Huh. Yeah. Can so, you say anything about? Thank you, Marjorie. Can you say anything about those kind of side effects? It's. The feeling of kind of emotional numbing is fairly common with the SSRIs. And I know that that is a kind of a frustrating state for people to, to be in. And it's, unfortunately, sometimes we have to talk out. So what's the worst situation? Having your depression and anxiety or having this emotional numbing? Um, and for a situation like yours, where it sounds like you'd been under good control for a long period of time, I think it sounds like that was a good move to evaluate. Can I gradually, very gradually, go off of these medications and, and see what happens? Um, and I, I hope this doesn't sound like a Debbie Downer response, but... Um, I would encourage you to keep monitoring because we just, we don't know for sure. I mean, the, these medicines are not healing completely. Like they don't fully take away susceptibility to experience anxiety or depression. So self-monitoring, I, I would say, is always important. And, and hopefully that self-monitoring will continue to show good progress and, and good things going forward. I am going to see a counselor, though, too. Good, good. Excellent. Just, I think it's coming up. Yep, great. All right, in the back. Thank you for coming. I appreciate it and very grateful. Um, my question, what do you think about like um, sickle asylum and like, an, like different hallucinogens for rewriting the brain? And what would, hap what, would, what would have to be done to get like cannabis tested to know like by the FDA? Thank you. Yeah, good question. So you were talking about psilocybin first. Um, that's a hallucinogenic medication as you were talking about or a drug. Can you, can you say it, name again? Psilocybin. It starts with a P. Doesn't sound like it would start oh, with a P, but okay. yeah, P-S-I-L-O-C-Y-B-I-N, I think is how you spell it. Hmm. Um, really fascinating research with that substance where it's given to people when they're in a very controlled therapy setting and it's like a 10-hour encounter where they, they go into hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic state and there's kind of a lot of 
um, reprocessing of memories and experiences. And for, I mean, this has only been studied in maybe a couple thousand people so far, but it shows very promising results for really dramatically reducing depression in a short period of time. Not so much for anxiety. The early research that's been done with it for anxiety doesn't seem very promising. Um, but people are getting wind of this and saying, oh, I'm going to buy some psilocybin on the internet and I'm going to try this myself. Please do not do that. Oh. Oh. There are case reports of people dying from things they're taking that they thought was psilocybin, but it actually has all kinds of poisons and things in it. So oh. really strongly discourage anybody from trying to do that by themselves because that's not at all what seems to be safe. And this is not a like ready for prime time, everybody who has depression, we're gonna do this with them. It's more an experimental therapy right now and something to maybe consider when almost everything else hasn't worked. Huh. And then your other question was about cannabis testing. Yeah. Um, so if you are getting cannabis from a medical dispensary, it will have pretty clearly specified what the components of the um, product are, like the percentage of THC and the percentage of the other um, active ingredients. But if you're getting it from really any other source, to my knowledge, the only way to know what's in it is if you take it to a forensic lab and have it tested. There are not like strips or something that you can easily see what its makeup is. I think I would certainly say, I, I don't know if you would, but um, that I, I've encouraged people who are pretty committed to using um, more marijuana for anxiety issues to get a to get a card to at least do it under the prescription um, of whoever is prescribing it yeah. and the and use the resources that are available. Yep, especially just for reliability of product. Yep. Yep. I just want to make a comment. In the fact that uh, 10 years ago I was asked to speak at CPSI. My husband and I gave a lot of continuing education. Her, him as a pastor and I as a pharmacist. And the question was, what made you successful as a pharmacist? And my reply was, is because I was in a psych ward. I could not, when I separated from my twin, I had PTSD. I could not function. I was like a bird thrown out of water. And at that time, you were put in a psych ward to learn to be an individual for six weeks. Mm. And in that experience, I saw people that were there for many reasons, many problems, and it, I saw how they were so shamed, how they were so overdosed. And so I said, as a pharmacist, I treated them as individuals. I didn't treat them with shame because I was shamed a lot. I didn't treat them as any different. Hmm. And, and that's what made me successful, I said. But I have to be on a PTSD med because hmm. that's what I have. Mm -hmm. So I'm not against it. But I'm also very much for alternative medicine for it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Camille. Do you have any comment? No? I don't think so, except that I would echo your sentiments about treating people as individuals and not as a disease or as oh. an immoral person or someone with flaws. We all have flaws, but they're variable. We are, we are I think, 
probably out of time. Um, again, Amy will stick around for a few minutes afterwards if anybody has a personal question. I want to thank you for very insightful questions. And um, I don't, I, I marvel having known you for a lot of years, how you have that much knowledge in that one head. <laughs> um, it's pretty amazing. And um, we thank you for coming. I, I'm going to just tell you that um, we're going to. Uh, uh, we will not have a happy hour in July. It's the 4th of July, I think, is the first Tuesday. And uh, kind of doing a little bit of evaluating as we move forward. So if you have any input or suggestions uh, regarding um, what we've been doing, uh, let me know. And uh, we'll announce if and when we kind of have some other things scheduled for the future. So um, thank you again. God thank bless. You. It's thank always you. nice to visit with you. And uh, thank you here. for such a wonderful hour.